Welcome to the Invictus Church Podcast. We're grateful that you've chosen to listen, and we want to invite you to join us each week as we upload new content. Our prayer each week is that those who listen in would not just be stirred or inspired, but also changed. Now, get ready for life change with this week's message from Invictus Church. I just felt like dying. I couldn't explain it. Uh, On paper, everything looked great. Uh, family was doing well. The church I was leading was growing. We were, all, the, all the indicators were going in the right direction, but I was miserable. I just wanted God to let me die. Um, I uh, was in a, a really, really dark and negative, bad place. I'll share more about my story uh, later on today and next week as well, but um, I'm definitely no stranger to what it feels like when depression is crushing in and closing in all around you and you feel like it's hopeless and there's nothing that will fix it. Uh, something I used to think before I battled depression was that people who were depressed, I would wonder, why can't they just cheer up? Anybody ever think that about depressed people? Yeah, I mean, you wonder that. And the fact of the matter is that If you're battling depression, there's nothing in the world you want more than to be able to feel better, nothing you want more than to be able to cheer up, but nothing seems to work. And uh, you follow all the directions, you do what your pastor says, you go to your Christian counselor and quote all the same Bible verses they share with you, and you go home and you still feel like garbage. Uh, Depression is no joke. Um, Now, There was a guy in the Bible named King David, and we're not going to look a whole lot at his life, but he wrote many of the Psalms. And when you start looking at the Psalms, you see that this guy, I think it's unquestionable that he wrestled with depression. Um, And he was the only person in the Bible described as a man after God's own heart. Now, if you're battling depression or if you've ever battled depression, there's good news for you. That's great news for you, that here's a guy, a man after God's own heart, who also uh, faced the same thing that you're facing. He wrestled with it, and if you know somebody that's wrestling with depression and you feel like, oh my gosh, it's kind of discouraging to be around them, and I don't want to be around them anymore, and you know, you just kind of maybe are, are feeling the urge to cast that person aside a little bit or think, I need to be around more positive people, well, let me tell you something, that's the person that God may one day choose to be the next David and say, there's a man or a woman after God's own heart. Don't write anybody off. Um, King David is a a classic example of that. And uh, he says in Psalm 31, 9 through 10, have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm in distress. Tears blur my eyes. My body and soul are withering away. I'm dying from grief. My years are shortened by sadness. Sin has drained my strength. I'm wasting away from within. Now, those sound like the words of a depressed person. Thankfully, today, a lot has changed for me. Um, I no longer feel like dying, and uh, God has done a lot of wonderful things in my life to help bring me back from the brink of depression and even the brink of suicide. And um, so I, I think it's appropriate that we talk about this. 
Uh, this is one of those subjects that I think every church ought to be talking about. The church ought to be leading in the conversations and discussions about depression and about mental, uh, mental illness and things like anxiety, PTSD, um, you name it, uh, uh, schizophrenia, uh, people who are battling bipolar. We ought to be talking about these things because 60%, this is what the estimate is, is that 60% of us either will have uh, do have a mental illness already or will struggle with a mental illness in our lifetime. Now think about that for just a minute. Six out of ten people that you know are probably going to battle mental illness at some point in their life. And so why is it that the church is silent on this important stuff? I think it's an indictment of the church that we're not opening up and saying, you know what, this is real, this is legitimate, people are struggling and hurting with this, and we've got to be honest about it and have these conversations. And so here we are today talking about this. 16 million Americans wrestle with major depression. They call it uh, major depressive disorder. It's kind of just the really crappy half of bipolar disorder. If you know anything about bipolar disorder, it's that uh, one day you feel really, 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 really down, and then the next day, or the even maybe the next moment, you feel like Superman. You could conquer the world, man. Everything is great and fantastic. And if you've ever known somebody with bipolar disorder, let me tell you something. They ought to be a hero to you because the fact that they are even alive is a miracle. People who wrestle with these things, uh, the, the temptation to just off themselves is huge. And the desire for this emotional roller coaster just to be over with is a powerful, powerful urge. And people who are battling mental illnesses are some of the strongest human beings I've ever met. We shouldn't write anybody off. We should believe in them. We should support them. We should love them. We should stick with them. And so today, specifically, we're talking about depression. And um, what are some of the symptoms of depression? Uh, these are in your notes. You might look at those there and uh, maybe keep this with you uh, because the fact is if you have five or more of these symptoms that seem to linger for more than a couple of weeks uh, and you go talk to a counselor or to a psychiatrist, they're going to diagnose you with major depression, major depressive disorder. Doesn't that just sound depressing, the name of it? I mean, why can't they name it something exciting to at least make you feel better about your diagnosis, right? But uh, you have major depressive disorder. Well, thanks, doc. That's fantastic. So uh, here are some of the major symptoms. Low mood, loss of interest in things that you used to enjoy, sleeping too much or sleeping too little, or maybe some of both. You stay up all night one night and then you sleep for two days, change in appetite, feeling worthless or excessively guilty. Poor concentration, restlessness, slowness, loss of energy, thoughts of suicide. If any of these things really persist with your life and five or more of them persist continuously, you probably are wrestling with major depression. Or if you know somebody who fits uh, five of these things or more, they're probably wrestling with major depression. So what do you do? How do you help those people? Well, no, first of all, there's a couple things we've got to recognize and remember. So if you're taking notes, write this down. There's a difference between feeling depressed and having depression. All right, everybody feels depressed from time to time. Uh, we live in Ohio, and we're Bengals and Cleveland Brown fans. 
So everybody knows what it's like to be depressed from time to time, or maybe for a whole season, but, uh, or maybe for 20 years. But anyway, um, we all know what it feels like to, to have those days that are down and that are discouraging. Um, but to be diagnosed with clinical depression is more than just having a bad day. It's like every day seems bad, and there's nothing that you can do about it, and it feels like the walls are closing in around you. Clinical depression is a medical disorder, just like having um, uh, diabetes is a medical disorder, just like having problems with your kidneys is a medical disorder, having cancer is a medical disorder, having heart disease is a medical disorder, having major depression or other mental illnesses, those are medical disorders. And the part of the body that's sick is the brain. Now, let, let me distinguish a couple of things between the brain and the mind, all right? This is maybe splitting hairs, but I think it's important for us to understand this. The brain is an organ. It's like your appendix or your stomach or a lung or whatever. It serves a purpose. And I guess maybe it's not like an appendix uh, unless it's my brain. Then it's like an appendix. It doesn't serve much of a purpose. But um, uh, your brain does serve a purpose just like all of the other organs in your body. And um, when chemicals are out of balance, when things are going goofy in the brain, guess what? That organ is sick. Now, that's not your mind. The mind is more like the person that you are that happens to dwell inside that thing. And we have a hard time distinguishing between the two. And so a lot of times when we think somebody's sick in the brain, that there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with their brain, but there's not something wrong with the person. It's a physical medical disorder. Second thing that you got to understand is that depression is not a problem with your feelings, it's a problem with the brain. So you've got to remember that. It's not a problem with your emotions, it's a problem with an organ. Now, if you're battling depression, I don't know about you, but this was a huge, huge uh, awakening moment for me when I realized that there was not something wrong with Alan but there was something wrong with an organ that I happened to house. That made a huge impact on me and gave me a tremendous amount of hope because it's not something wrong with the way that I'm feeling. My feelings are a natural extension of what's going on in a sick organ. And that should give you great hope because if the organ can be worked on, if it can be healed to some extent or to a great extent, things can change significantly for you. So there's tremendous, tremendous hope. In the brain, there's a feel-good hormone called serotonin. And there are a lot more feel-good hormones than just that one in the brain. Uh, we're not going to get into all of them, but I do want to talk a little bit about serotonin today um, because it's a natural feel-good hormone. When you're feeling like you're having a good day, it, serotonin's flowing. It's great. And when the serotonin is not flowing, when it's not being released into your brain, uh, it causes you to feel bad. And we can suffer from serotonin deplenishment, uh, where it's just like a barren wasteland in there, and the, the, the serotonin isn't being created in our brains like it needs to be. Now, serotonin is replenished during times of rest and fun, and it uh, fuels you while you're working. If you've ever survived a long day at work where you're just like, okay, I'm going to get through this and not kill anybody, uh, you can thank a lot 
uh, 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 you can give a lot of thanks to serotonin. That's one of those things that uh, keeps you happy even though maybe you have a job you hate or maybe you just can't stand the people that you're working with or the company that you work for or whatever the case is. Uh, anybody ever felt that way when you're at work? I'm just kind of powering through. And um, uh, when a person is clinically depressed, they start to lose that ability to just power through and they get there and just trudge and trudge and trudge and that's because they're, they don't have the serotonin to fuel them while they're working. If you uh, live without a cadence that replenishes your system, serotonin is going to deplete. Your body will substitute at some point serotonin for adrenaline. If, you, if you've ever been to Kings Island, you know exactly what dr- adrenaline is, right? You get on a roller coaster and go climbing up the hill, and then all of a sudden when it starts to drop and you feel your stomach go from here to here, and uh, your body is telling yourself, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, but your brain is saying, no, I'm not, I'm strapped into a machine, it's safe, certainly they're not going to kill me, they don't want to get sued, and um, so you're having kind of this battle between your intellect and adrenaline, and in your brain is surging this hormone called adrenaline that's making you go, ah! and you know, you freak out and lose it for a minute. Or if you see your child out in the middle of the street playing while you're in your house, all of a sudden, I'll never forget this. Taylor, our oldest, was about two years old, and uh, I'm walking down the stairs of the house, and I find the front door wide open. He had figured out how to unlock the door, and I found him two blocks away, just walking in the middle of the street. And you don't think that uh, that caused a little bit of adrenaline to surge in dad, all of a sudden I could run like the flash and look at me. I don't run like the flash. I don't even run like the blob. I mean, I was just, you know, uh, so there's Taylor down the street. I'm taking off tearing after him because I've got this adrenaline surging in my blood and in my body that gives me superhuman power and strength to pick that child up out of the street and hug him and, oh, blow, don't do that again. And so pretty soon we had locks way up high on all of our doors so that I wouldn't have any more of those adrenaline rushes and Taylor wouldn't get run over. And um, uh, what happens when you start to run out of serotonin is your body gets addicted to adrenaline and you start to use up all your adrenaline as well. Now, adrenaline is great for the short term, but it destroys you long term. There's this thing called your fight or flight syndrome. All of us have it just like a zebra has it. You know, a zebra sees a lion coming and what does the zebra do? Stop and go to the bathroom? No, the zebra takes off running, right? Why? Because of adrenaline, because of the flight or fight, flight, fight or flight reflex. I can't say the words. Fight or flight reflex. And um, when that happens, all of your body's normal functions stop. Did you know that when a gazelle or a zebra or any of those poor innocent animals that you see on Discovery Channel being chased by the cheetah, when they're running away, their body is not digesting food. It stopped that. It stops fighting disease. It stops doing all of these other things that are less important to survival in the immediate term. And it starts focusing all of its body's energy on getting away. So if you're living on adrenaline all the time, what do you think that's going to do to you? No wonder people who are battling depression and anxiety long term start to have problems with their gut. They begin to have all kinds of other physical issues and symptoms because they start to function and live on adrenaline rather than serotonin, and eventually your body runs out of adrenaline, and then what? You crash, and you crash hard. This is what happens to us physically when we're battling things like depression. 
It's important for us to understand depression is not a problem with feelings. It's a problem with the brain. It's a physical, actual, measurable thing. And we understand that today. We didn't understand it even 50, 60, 100 years ago. And uh, so we're fortunate to live in a time when we live. Uh, you, a long time ago, it was easy just to write somebody off, stick them in a mental institution, and say, good luck. But today, we understand much more about it than we did. And with that knowledge comes a greater amount of responsibility. Uh, if you didn't know what I've shared with you already today, guess what? I've just given you more responsibility. Wasn't that nice of me? And you're going, man, I need a vacation. I need less responsibility, not more. You see, the more we understand about this, the more we're going to understand what's going on in people's lives around us, and the more of a responsibility we have to them to love them, to serve them, to help them, to encourage them. So today, I want to speak specifically to those of us here who are not battling depression right now. But you probably know somebody who is. How many of you know somebody that's battling depression? Go ahead and raise your hand. Yeah, that's almost everybody in the room. And so today's message is for you to be able to understand them a little bit more. There are four things that cause uh, this depletion in our system, uh, four major causes of depression. If you're taking notes, write them down. The first one is long-term stress. Long-term stress is a huge cause for depression. Um, you can have things like uh, high-stress job over and over and over and over again, that's going to re re uh, result in long-term stress. Uh, a business owner, uh, if you're a business owner, you've got long-term stress, right? Uh, you're trying to run your business and pay your employees and uh, keep the, the books balanced. And I mean, you've just got all of this responsibility. It's exhausting. Uh, academics, if you're in school, you've got long-term stress. Uh, if you're a parent, congratulations. You are the victim of long-term stress. And uh, insanity is indeed inherited from your children. I promise you that. Um, uh, if you're married, long-term stress. How many of you know that marriage is work, right? Uh, everybody that says, I do, doesn't know what the heck they're doing, or do they? I mean, you, you start to figure that out along the way down the road, and it's like, okay, I'm, uh, I guess I still do. And um, you, you learn what marriage is like. You find out it's work and it's stressful. If you're facing a chronic illness, then you're somebody who's facing long-term stress. Uh, managing finances, especially if your finances are uh, kind of managing you, uh, that can be a, a great source of long-term stress. If you're on welfare, uh, or you're depending on loans from family members, or you've got too much debt, you've got all of the, there are just so many things in our lives that can bring on long-term stress. The second cause of major depression is great loss. Uh, if you've lost your job, or if you've gone through a divorce, or uh, you've had a, a death in the family, or lost a close friend, or um, uh, in Oklahoma, it's not uncommon for people to lose things to tornadoes. Uh, major disasters come along and cause great loss in our lives. Uh, if you're battling a loss of health, um, loss of a friendship, you name it. Somebody unfriended you on Facebook, and it's somebody that you've been friends with for 20-some-odd years, and then you don't know what's wrong. It's, it, it's a great loss to lose that person. Anytime you're facing great loss, that's another one of those causes of depression. Another one, uh, number three, is unresolved problems. In fact, you might say problems don't destroy you, but unresolved problems do. 
Unresolved problems will eat your lunch. If you've got unmanageable debt or no retirement or you're wrestling with bitterness and unforgiveness, family dysfunction, personal conflict, those kinds of things, unresolved problems cause a great deal amount of stress and it wears on you long term and can contribute to depression. And number four, the pressure to excel. Now, in America today, we feel the pressure to excel, don't we? We've got to keep up with the Joneses. I think especially if you're a lady in America today, the pressure to excel is just unfair and unrealistic. You've got to be 110 pounds and look like a supermodel when you're 63 years old. I mean, how realistic is that? It's just not cool. And uh, we put that pressure on people in our society, and then we feel like it's real pressure on us. We have to do this. Men, I have to provide six figures for my family, or I'm not a man. Um, you know, we, we get beaten down by expectations, this pressure to excel. If you're a Christian, and you're living in the world, and people know you're a Christian, suddenly you live in a fishbowl. They're watching you all the time. They're looking at you to see if you mess up, to see if you're a hypocrite. And guess what? If you're a Christian, you are a hypocrite. Welcome to the club. People say, I don't want to go to church because it's full of hypocrites. Well, I'm the biggest one here, and uh, I tell people all the time, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll screw it up um, because you're a hypocrite too. We're all made of messy stuff, uh, but when you start telling people, I'm a follower of Jesus, they start watching you a little bit more closely, and all of a sudden, there's that pressure to live up to the name Christ. There's that pressure to excel. Uh, if you're, you're in school, you've got pressure to uh, get, keep your GPA up. If you uh, work in sales or you have uh, quotas that you have to meet in your job, um, uh, having employees, if you've got to lead your employees, you have a, a pressure on yourself to excel and make sure that the business is thriving so that your employees can take care of themselves and their families. Um, if you want a promotion, you've got this pressure to excel. Pressure to excel comes all over the place. And when we look at these four things, these four major, major causes of depression, have you ever had those in your own life? Now, I don't know about you, but for a season, I had all four of those in spades. And it was like a frog in the kettle kind of situation. You know, you put a frog in cold water and then slowly turn up the heat, and that frog will stay in there until it boils to death. It doesn't realize the water's getting hot around it until it's too late and it dies. And um, that's what this was for me. Uh, I knew there was stress in my life, but I just wasn't really aware of how much and how uh, uh, it was just crushing in on me until I woke up one day and wanted to end my life. I realized, wow, you know what? I really do have too much of all four of these things in my life, and uh, something's got to change. Now, we understand what depression is a little bit better now, so we have more responsibility, but what do we do with that responsibility? Um, I'm going to say this first of all. Here's what you don't do, all right? What not to say to people who have depression. Um, and I've got an even longer list of what not to say to people uh, who have uh, wrestled with anxiety, but we'll save that for another message series. Uh, we're talking about depression today. Don't say things that make them feel guilty. Um, I once had somebody tell me, you need to get over your depression because depression is the highest form of pride. Now, I don't even really understand what the heck that nincompoop meant, but it didn't make me feel any better. 
that made me feel bad about myself. Well, I must be arrogant or prideful or something's matter with me. And Don't say that things that make them feel guilty. Uh, don't give overly simplistic spiritual advice like, well, you just need to pray more. Or my favorite, what I call the drive-by Bible versing. Somebody comes by and, you know, they just throw a verse of Scripture at you. You know, Um, here it is. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And you're like, I want to punch you in the face always. And um, it's just, it's it's mind-numbing. It's exhausting. It's, it's, uh, It's dangerous for us to throw around spiritual advice flippantly to people. The Lord is, uh, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Is it true? You bet. But is it helpful to a person who has something wrong with their organ called the brain? Somebody's sick in their kidneys, you don't walk in and go, the joy of the Lord is your strength. (laughs) They're going to be like, please get out. (laughs) Security, right? We want to treat people with dignity and respect and not give them over, overly simplistic spiritual advice. Don't give them self-help quotes uh, or um, that kind of advice. You know, turn that frown upside down. <laughs> really? Snap out of it? Seriously? That's not going to help. Uh, just cheer up. You are what you think. Um, those kinds of things make a depressed person feel even worse. And so while your intentions may be good, you're not helping, you're actually hurting. The problem is that we live in a culture of fast fixes. We've got fast everything. Um, I, I was watching a, an ad about um, some new Samsung phone, and you know it's so much faster than the iPhone 6, which I think is a funny commercial, because I'm kind of an Apple snob. And uh, uh, if you're going to compare your phone to an iPhone, don't compare it to the one that's four years old. That's just stupid marketing. But anyway, uh, the lazy marketing and all, the, the, the whole point of the commercial was this girl's like, oh, my phone is slow, and she's in line at the airport, and the TSA person is there, show me your pass. Well, it's loading, it's loading, and it takes a few seconds, and she gets in the wrong Uber because she doesn't know if that's her car or not because her phone is slow and you know her life is just a disaster because her phone is slow and then at the end of the commercial she gets the new Samsung and everything's great and she's like I got up that that upgrade and she's sitting in her living room kicking back on her couch and life is fantastic because she got something faster we go to Skyline Chile and we get frustrated if they take five minutes to get our chili ready right I want my chili and I want it now with all 13 pounds of cheese Heart attack on a plate right there. We, we want our stuff and we want it fast. Um, I was watching baseball yesterday. It even dawned on me looking at the screen. You know, it used to be you, you just saw the baseball game. Now you see all this digital information. You've got statistics up there and you, you can see immediately what inning we're in and um, how many outs, how many hits, how many um, whatever. All the information is there. And you can see it right away and get a, a, an immediate uh, fix and figure out where you are in the game. And yet, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you'd go in to watch a baseball game. You walk in halfway through it. It takes a little while for you to figure out where they are in the game. You can see the score, but that was about it. And um, uh, we want our information. We want it now. We want it fast. We live in a culture of immediate uh, uh, gratification and 
So it's easy for us to take that cultural thing and weave it into our own lives and think, I've got somebody who's wrestling with depression in my life. I've got to fix them quick. You can't do it. Depression didn't come on fast, and it's not going to go away fast. It's a real battle. So we've got to make sure that we understand this stuff a little bit better and don't give them the quick, easy answers that we'd like to give them. So how do we fix depressed people? You don't. You love them. We don't fix people who are depressed. Only God can do that. What we can do is love them. So how do you love depressed people? Galatians 6.2 sums it up best. It says, help carry each other's burdens. In this way, you will follow Christ's teachings. Depression is a burden, and when we help people carry it, we're a great blessing to them, a great servant to them, a great friend to them. So how do you carry their burdens? I want to give you seven real quick, not quick fixes, but quick points uh, that will help you learn to carry other people's burdens. Number one, try to understand the real problem. We've talked about that today. Understand that the real problem is physiology and stress. It's not emotions and behaviors. Number two, allow them time away. Give them time to detox. If they say, I need time away by myself, uh, a lot of times our initial reaction to that is, no, I don't want you by yourself because you might be suicidal. Um, And so there's this tension you've got to balance there. If the person is suicidal, you don't want them by themselves. But if they're not suicidal, they may need that. And um, uh, the last church that I was serving when I really started wrestling with depression, our elders were really good to me and they gave me seven weeks off. They said, you need seven weeks to go get away, do some recovery, uh, come back feeling better, and uh, they were very, very, very gracious to me. If you're a business owner or a boss and you've got somebody who's really battling depression, um, help them, fight for them so they can get the time away that they need uh, to be able to recover. You don't have to give them seven weeks off. I don't know what they need, uh, but talk to them. Figure out what you can do to help. It sometimes... Just a weekend away from the front lines is all it takes to get your head screwed on straight. And if they need that, help them get that. Um, Number three, help them with their responsibilities. A person who's battling depression is handicapped, all right? There's something going on in their brain that is just debilitating, and they need help. They're going to need help with their job. They're going to need help with their kids. They're going to need help with maybe even things, simple things like grocery shopping and laundry. You can be a huge help to somebody who's battling depression if you will help just give simple help to, you know, what are some simple things in your life that I can do to, to assist you right now? Can I bring dinner over to your house this week? Can I have you guys over for dinner? Uh, can I come to your house and do laundry? Can I come to your house and clean? Can I come mow your lawn for you? Uh, Any practical help like that is going to really help a person who's battling major depression. Number four, listen. Now, don't just talk. In fact, the best thing you can do for a person who's depressed is not talk. 
listen to what's going on. And when they say stuff that sounds stupid, and depressed people say things that sound stupid, all right? I can say that because I've been through it. And saying things like, I feel like there's no hope, is silly. It's not true, but it feels very true to that person who's battling depression. And if you sit there and try to counteract every one of their points that they're making, everything that they're saying, you try to say the opposite, they're not going to want to talk to you because you're not listening. You're just trying to fix. Listen to them. Number five, pray for them. Pray for them often. And don't just do the, uh, uh, you know, what a lot of us are guilty of is, um, I'm going to pray for you, and then we don't do it. Anybody willing to admit you've been there? Come on, I'm raising my hand. I'm the pastor, and I've been guilty more than once of saying to somebody, I'm going to pray for you, and then not do it. And uh, so I've made a habit of when I say I'm going to pray for somebody, I immediately do that. Either I pray with them or I go real quick by myself and say a quick prayer for them. And uh, then if I've got my prayer journal with me, I'll put their name in my prayer journal. And uh, what I do in my prayer journal is when I'm praying for somebody or something, I write it on a page. And then every time I go back and pray for it again, I circle that person's name or that thing that I'm praying about. And uh, one of the most encouraging things that I love to do for people who are in my prayer journal Uh, I've got a friend in Oklahoma right now who's battling major, major depression. This guy uh, lost 10 years of his life to prison. Uh, He was in prison from age 18 to age 28, and he is now out, but it's hard to find a job. I mean, he's really discouraged all the time. People don't take him seriously because he's got a bunch of prison tattoos, and, um, you know, but he's a godly Christian guy and a dad, and he's doing his best to live the life that God wants him to live, but you know, here he is, he's like 33 years old now and still trying to get over this stigma of being an inmate and uh, it's depressing for him, it's really discouraging. And so I've got his name, his name's Justin, I've got him in my prayer journal and I'll uh, take a picture of that every now and then and send it to him and say, man, every one of these circles represents a prayer and there are hundreds of circles around this guy's name. And uh, it just looks like a big scribbly mess on that page. And that's okay, because it's encouraging to him. It's helpful to him. Really pray for people. Uh, Never offer quick fixes. We talked about the drive-by Bible versing and the cliche and the quick fix and the self-help advice. Don't do those kinds of things. You carry their burden by being there for them. And then number seven or six on this list, I don't know what happened on our list, but did I combine that in our notes and goof things up? Probably my fault. But uh, this last one, stick with them no matter what. This is huge. Stick with them no matter what. That's the hardest point up there on that list. Because sticking with somebody who's battling major depression is exhausting. And it's really hard to actually stick with someone no matter what. It's easy to say, I'm going to stick with you. And then it's hard to do. Um, Let me ask you a question. How long does it take to help carry somebody's burden? It's a hard one to answer, right? But the answer, it's simpler than you might think. It's as long as it takes. That's the answer. How long does it take to carry somebody's burden? As long as it takes.
That might be six months, it might be six years, it might be 10 years, it might be 20 years. Stick with them no matter what. What if it takes a lifetime? We're on the hook for life. It's just that simple and that complicated at the same time. We're on the hook for life. You see, the Christian life is about sacrificing for others. We've got to be willing to go the distance with people and stick with them no matter what. Now, some of you have asked me over the last few weeks that I've been here, well, what led you to City Church? And the short answer would be, uh, art is relentless and called me time and time and time again. And man, uh, you know, you could go to some big church somewhere and uh, have influence over a thousand people or two thousand people or something like that. Or you could come here where you can be a part of what's going on at City Church and our radio station and influence, you know, tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, so he, he just kept reminding me of that. And the Lord began to um, speak to me through that, but that's the short answer. The, the, the real the longer version is this. Two years ago, I started looking for a new church to become a pastor of, and it took me about two years to find that because there were some key people at my previous church that did not stick with me no matter what. Um, our, our last church, I was honest with the church, shared with the church about my depression. I uh, told our elders about my depression, and our church elders were very generous, gave me time off. They were encouraging to me and that sort of thing. But after my time off and I came back and I wasn't perfectly fixed, it kind of freaked out uh, our elders, and it, it just took three of them to make the decision that uh, I was not fit to be pastor because I was still battling depression. And so I was fired for being depressed. Now, their intentions were good, all right? I don't want to paint a picture of these guys as some horrible people. They're not. Uh, They're people that I love dearly and still uh, to this day love and appreciate what they did for me. They gave my family six months severance, so I got paid for a full six months for not working a lick. Um, That was incredibly generous, incredibly kind of them. Um, They said, we want to set you free from the burdens of ministry right now so that you can Um, focus on getting well. Now, it was easy for me to think, well, you big jerks, you know, what's more stressful than working at a church? Unemployment. Um, And uh, it was easy for me to feel those things and to think those things. Thankfully, I never said them to them, although I thought that a lot. Uh, But, um, uh, you know, their, their hearts were in the right place. I just happened to disagree with the decision that they made. Um, But that's ultimately why Uh, I went through a season of two years not being the pastor of a church, and I needed much of that time to help get better. Uh, I'm glad the Lord allowed me to have that two-year span uh, because I can come to you today as your pastor, emotionally healthy, and better equipped to do ministry now than I've ever been equipped before uh, because of what he's done through this, but it made for a really tough couple of years because, you know, there were people who unfriended me on Facebook and he's too discouraging. I mean, I, sadly, I'm, I'm one of those guys that's pretty darn honest even on Facebook. And, uh, you know, most people share their highlight reels 
and never their behind the scenes. Um, I shared a little too much of my behind the scenes and the stuff that I was struggling with. And while some people praised it and were like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. You're being so transparent and so honest and we love you and we're encouraging you and praying for you and that sort of thing. Other people were like, it's just too much, too fast. It's too honest and I can't be this guy's friend anymore. And uh, that stuff's hard to process. It's, it's really, really difficult as a person who has gone through a significant battle with depression. I can tell you the best advice that you will hear is stick with them no matter what. Because that's what they need. That's what they need is your loyalty, your friendship, your love, your encouragement. And I understand Maybe you're here today and you're saying, I'm tired. Man, I'm, I've already given so much. I've already tried to help so much, and I'm spent. I get it. I really do. That person who's depressed is also spent and also tired. And so the great news is you're not alone. You may feel like you're having to do all the supporting, but the fact is they can support you too because you're both spent, you're both tired, you're both worn out. And it's, you know the old saying, misery loves company. So let's be miserable together because there's something about that that creates a bond that cannot be created in any other context. Have you ever wondered why soldiers come back from war and their relationship is like this? These guys who went through combat together, slept in trenches together, saw the ugliest of the ugliest, the worst of the worst, did the worst of the worst with each other. I mean, these guys went through hell and back, and they come back as close friends, and they'll get together for reunions 20, 30, 50 years from the time that they were in war, and they pick right up where they left off. Why is that? Because there is something significant about suffering together. It does something for relationships that nothing else does. Marriages who can suffer through the darkest times and make it through without divorcing become some of the strongest marriages in the world because of suffering together. Friendships that go through hell together are friendships that will last a lifetime because of the suffering together. This person that's depressed and that you're tired of helping and that you feel like, man, I just want to give up on them, don't do it. Because this could be the most precious friendship God has ever given you. There's something that happens that's powerful when we're miserable together, when we suffer together. So stick with them no matter what. Somebody you know who's depressed needs you. They're at the end of their rope. They could be at a breaking point. Don't stand by and let that happen. Stick with them no matter what. Thanks again for listening to the Invictus Church podcast. Be sure to tune in every week for more new content. We'd like to invite you to join us in person for our weekend worship services. To get more information about our meeting times and location, please visit us online at www.invictus.church. 
If this or any of our episodes have inspired you to take steps in your relationship with Jesus, please let us know by sending us a note at info at invictus.church. We would love to hear how our message has helped change your life. Also, if our podcast has been meaningful for you and you'd like to give financially to our ministry, you can easily make your contribution online at www.invictus.church give. Thanks one more time for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week.